I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark Church, and I'm so deeply grateful to be with you all um, and to be with you here on this beautiful Resurrection Day. And I think we're so used to being in church on Sunday mornings that several times I think I'm going to catch myself saying, good morning, and, and he is risen this morning, and all of these two things, but we're really glad. He's still risen in the afternoon, isn't he? It's not, it's not like later on in the day he's, he's gone away. So we're glad that you are all here. He is risen... He is risen indeed. Oh, we got some good liturgical Christians. We try it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is what we celebrate here on Resurrection Sunday. And we are so deeply grateful for this opportunity. Our story this morning is coming from John chapter 20. Now you can read about all of the events of this week that we call Holy Week, or is also often called Passion Week. You can read about all of them at the end of any of the first four books of your New Testament, what we call the Gospels, the ways in which we tell the good news of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And at the end of any of those books, you can read these stories. But what we've been keeping this whole week long, last Sunday was Palm Sunday, where we remembered Jesus' entrance on Lamb Selection Day into the city of Jerusalem during Passover week, a celebration of freedom and freedom from oppression. And we talked about that last week with Pastor Omer. And then this week, if you've been keeping it all, the liturgical calendar, perhaps you were keeping and thinking of Thursday night as Monday Thursday, the night where we celebrate the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and also uh, the celebration of Passover with Jesus and his disciples. And then on Friday, many of us attended Good Friday services where we remembered that indeed it was Jesus's death and death on a cross 2,000 years ago that ushered into all of humanity and history this new season of Holy Week. Jesus crucified for us on that cross, our Passover lamb, and then laid into the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread when all of religious Israel is praying for life to come from the ground, for the bread of the earth to come from the ground. And then yesterday, many of you gathered here for our women's group for Holy Saturday, a Saturday where we come together and we remember that many of us live our lives between Good Friday and the reality of grief and mourning and loss and disappointment, and then we're stuck in the Saturday before the realization of the miracle and the promise. We're often stuck in that holy Saturday. And many of us wanna just jump from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, and I get it. I wanna jump to the miracle too. But I think we do so at our own peril because much of our life is lived on Saturdays. But here we are now on Sunday. Now, as we enter into this portion of our story in the Gospel of John, the disciples and the women, who are also disciples, are hanging out at the tomb because Jesus has died and was buried, and they've come to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Let's hear what happens here in John chapter 20. Early on, on the first day of the week, that's a Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, this is Miriam from a place called Migdal, um, which means tower. So Miriam the tower, and from the place maybe of the tower, came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. This is deeply concerning, is it not? 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. By the way, do you think that when it says the disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that he didn't love the others? And they just like really loved that one or that one's writing the story. Sure, I like to say it my way too. Jesus' favorite, yeah. Now, the two are running together, but the other disciple, the one who is most loved, is also fastest. He outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, again, fastest, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand from the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. And then the disciples returned to their homes. Isn't that what you would do if you found an empty tomb where your Lord and Savior's body had been apparently taken and gone? And you'd be like, well, let's just go home then. And if that had been the only part of the story, that's where it would have ended. But Mary, always takes a lady. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. You can imagine her grief and her misery. Her rabbi, her teacher, her friend, her mentor, the family member, her father figure had been brutally killed had died, was lying in a tomb, and she was going, and according to the other accounts of the Gospels, along with other women, to go in to care for his body. It's the last dignity she could give to him. And she goes, and they cannot even let the man die in peace. She believes that they've taken his body and laid it somewhere else entirely. And she just sits there and weeps. She sits with the grief and weeps. I do not know where they've laid him. When she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. By the way, that's just a theme throughout all of life and all the Bible, is that we figure out that it's Jesus in the after. Jacob does this when he is down in Bethel and he falls asleep and he has this massively cool dream where he sees the angels of God ascending and descending from the heaven. He wakes up and he goes, oh, this place is the house of God, Bethel. God was in this place and I did not know it. And Moses says the same. He's just out in a normal desert working with the sheep. Then he sees this weird bush. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. And he comes closer. And as God sees that Moses will stop and come closer, God says, take off your sandals because the place we are standing is holy ground. He doesn't know that before. It's something he finds out in the after. 
And there's many and many stories about this. Even when Moses wants to see God at Mount Sinai, God's like, you know, you can't see me. If you see me, you'll die. And he's like, okay, okay, but I'll push you into the cleft of the rock and you will see my after. We can often see God in the after. So Mary had said this. She turns around, she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't know yet that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, and by the way, there's a whole wonderfully beautiful sermon in this alone, all the way back to Genesis. Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Just please let me take care of his body. And Jesus said to her, Miriam, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, my rabbi, which means my teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Miriam from Migdal, Mary Magdalene, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Mary's name, Miriam, in Hebrew can mean bitter, but it can also mean rebellion. And it's such a fitting word named after the sister of Moses, who is living through the bitterness of slavery, but is waiting for the rebellion from oppression. And here we have another Miriam standing there, weeping with the bitterness of the reality of the oppression of Rome and the loss of her rabbi. But enough, a little bit, a touch of rebellion that brings her there on a Sunday morning to take care of a body and finds, when fully expecting death, finds life. Miriam, I have seen the Lord. And that becomes her story. This is the story, actually, that brings us all here today. If Miriam had not stayed there, if she had not waited, if she had not sat in the grief and waiting for that moment, if she had not said, please show me where you've laid him that I might find his body and take care of him, if she had not stayed there, she would not have seen and she would not have had that story to tell. Mark Iaconelli has written this beautiful book. Kevin's named it one of his favorites of the year so far. And Mark Iaconelli will be coming here in the fall for a wonderful spiritual retreat at this incredible, beautiful, like wellness retreat center in Pescadero, Costanero. You, you have to come. But Mark Iaconelli is going to come talk about this book. But to give you a taste, here's what he talks about. In his book, Between the Listening and the Telling, he talks about how stories can save us. And he says, stories ground us in the world, telling us who we are, where we belong, why we matter, and why we can hope. Now, Jesus is the one to show up to Mary and say, what is your story right now? And so he says to Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And whom are you looking for? Isn't that incredible? That Jesus cares enough 
not to just say, hey, by the way, let me show you this really cool miracle that's just happened. I'm here and I'm alive. He cares enough to say to her, tell me your story. What has broken you, Mary? What has made you so sad so to grievously weep at this tomb? What has happened to you? Who are you looking for? What an incredible question to be asked by the creator of the universe. Why are you sad? And what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Now, Jesus knows the answers to these questions, doesn't he? Right? Wouldn't you all assume? He cares enough to ask us, what is your story? When Jesus asks us our story, he steps into our reality. And instead of judgment, he stays with us. He sits with us. He suffers with us rejoices with us. When Jesus says, tell me your story, he's really asking, can I relive your experience with you? Can I see as you have seen? Can I feel as you have felt? Can I know the world as you have known it? Can I be with you in it? This is what the power of stories can do for us, but it's also the power of the question of somebody who comes alongside us and says, can I know what breaks your heart? Jesus comes to each one of us and says, can I know you? Can I know and sit with you? Tell me what is causing you to weep. What causes you to rejoice? Let me see the world as you see it. You see, what the cross does, what the death, burial, and resurrection does for us, it shows us not that Christ only will suffer with us, but that Christ stands in solidarity with us, that Christ weeps with us, that Christ knows us and wants us to know that he knows. Jesus is with us. And Mary's story changes in this moment from weeping and grief and confusion and despair. And her story becomes, after this encounter, I've seen the Lord. Her story's changed entirely. With one word, Mary, Rabboni, I have seen the Lord. And we're all here in this room because she went and told that story. Because the resurrection changed everything. It changed everything from sitting and grieving and weeping as though we had no hope to I have seen the Lord. He is alive. And because of this resurrection, we today live resurrection-shaped lives. We live lives that run to the tomb that everybody else has said, here there is death and grief and weeping and mourning. And we say, yes, and there's hope. And miracles come even in these places. This resurrection changed everything. The apostle Paul talks about it all the time. He talks about how if we don't have the resurrection, we have nothing. He talks about how the resurrection has shifted everything in the universe, how the death, 
burial, and resurrection, and the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection changed how we now live and understand ourselves in this world. It's changed our identity. For one quick example, let's look at Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed so we might no longer be enslaved to sin for whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, live to God in Christ Jesus. Everything's changed. Everything's shifted. It's all been changed as a result of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We now get to live a brand new life. Without the resurrection, there is only an ending. There is only grief, we would not be telling the story. We would not tell the story of one more first century Torah observant Jew who had been killed by the Romans. We know that the Romans crucified so many Jews that they one time ran out of wood and started nailing them to the city walls. It's not news that Rome got concerned about a messianic movement and killed its leader, particularly in the middle of the Freedom Festival of Passover. That's not news. The resurrection is the news. Without the resurrection, there's simply an ending, but the resurrection changes everything because with the resurrection, there's a beginning. And not just one beginning, but in Jesus, that which happened, happens now, again and again, and in the world to come. The resurrection is not a story that just tells us that it happened one time 2,000 years ago. The resurrection happens it is continuing to happen today. We have new life in Christ. The good news of Easter Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday, is that the resurrection means we don't stay stuck in a story of despair. Jesus brings us into new life, new beginnings. Death, shame, suffering, pain no longer have the last word. This is the story of Easter. It's a story of liberation, of freedom, and of hope. Mark Iaconelli, in his book, quotes the Nigerian-British poet Ben Okri in his book, A Way of Being Free. He says this, we live by stories. We also live in them. One way or another, we're living the stories planted in us early or along the way, or we're also living the stories we planted, knowingly or unknowingly, in ourselves. We live stories that either give our lives meaning or negate it with meaninglessness. If we change the stories we live by, quite possibly we change our lives. Mary's story changed in a moment. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? They've taken him, he's been killed, that's her story. I'm here to take care of the dead. Miriam. Raboni, he's alive. 
I have seen the Lord. Her story has changed. And because her story changed, because the resurrection changed the story of the world, because it changed your story and mine, there's new life to be had. Now, I grew up in church. I grew up in a beautiful, wonderful church in Northern California. It was fantastic, a nice little, cute community Lutheran church, just like this one, beautiful and lovely and fantastic. And in that church, they told us these stories. We read every single Sunday liturgy from the Gospels, from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament, from Psalms, Proverbs, Gospels, and the Epistles. Every single Sunday, we stood up and we read those words. But one Sunday... They told it a different way. They told it in a way that I hadn't heard before. They told this story called The Ragman by Walter Wangeren Jr. Now, this story helped me understand in a way I didn't before as a kid what the resurrection truly meant to me and for me. It told me a way, it showed me a way of understanding a story that didn't just happen 2,000 years ago, but a story that is happening still today and is still happening in my life and showed me a way to understand what it is that Jesus has truly done for us. And this story changed me. And it became one of the narratives, one of the stories by which I live my life. So it's with great joy that I'll share the story with you all this afternoon. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue, had ever prepared me for. Hush, children, hush now, and I'll tell it to you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice. Rags. Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, rags, old rags for new. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys and pampers, and gently said, Give me your rag, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and knew that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done. 
his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, I, I take old rags, rags. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a boy whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked his bandage. A single line of blood ran down his cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a handsome baseball cap from his cart. Give me your rags and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The hat he set on his. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags. I, I take old rags. Cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat. The cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, give me your jacket, and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. After that, he found a drunk, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it round himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now, I had to run to keep up with the ragman. Though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. And then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I'd come to love the ragman. 
Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know? I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. But then, on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And beside that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well then, I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name was Shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. He dressed me, my Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Amen. That story changed me. It didn't give me information I hadn't had before. I knew all of it in my head, but it sunk into my heart in a way that helped me to understand what it is that Jesus does for each one of us. That Jesus longs to step into our story. That Jesus longs to give us new rags, brand new, pure, white as snow rags that he takes what we have and exchanges it for something new, something beautiful. Because in Christ, today is a new beginning. Because Christ is risen. In Christ, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. You and I are made new. Christ makes us new. He takes our old tired rags and says, give those to me and I'll give you another. Friends, we all need that. This is a story by which we get to live. We get to say, I am not defined by my status, by the harm that has been done to me, by the harm I have done to others. I am not defined by the best or the worst days of my life. I am defined by Christ who loves us and makes us new. And we are all invited to say yes. What I love about that story is that the ragman is the one to go to the brokenhearted. He's the one that comes to each of us, to each of one of us. I mean, the, the drunk is just even asleep, doesn't even have the capacity to say yes. And Jesus comes to each one and says, I'll give you a new life. That's what resurrection means to me. That's what Easter Sunday means to me. It means that the story by which I live my life is that resurrection is not just possible and didn't only happen once 2,000 years ago, but 
happens still today in your life and mine. And if you want resurrection today, if you want Jesus to take your old rags today and give you something bright and new, please come. Now is the time in our service when we open up Christ's table. Jesus, who bids us to come. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, all who are hungry, come. All who are thirsty, come. The table has been made for you. Everyone who needs a new rag, come. Jesus waits for us here. All are welcome at this table. This is a table of new life. This is a table of resurrection. Come. <laughs>